Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Common Sense with Dr. Ben Carson. Well, hello, everyone. And welcome to another episode of Common Sense with Dr. Ben Carson. I'm your host, Ben Carson. And, uh, you know, I talk about it all the time. Common sense, not very common anymore. But uh, we have a guest today who has a lot of common sense. Our special guest is Spencer Clavin. Uh, He's a scholar, a writer, a podcaster, earned a doctorate in ancient Greek literature from Oxford University, an editor at the Claremont Institute, and author of a new book, How to Save the West, Ancient Wisdom for Five Modern Crises. Welcome, Spencer, and thank you for joining our podcast today. Thank you, Dr. Carson. It's really wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, How to Save the West. Now, that's a pretty ambitious title. Yeah. Uh, Western ideals have sort of become a touchstone in today's cultural wars, and it's come to mean racism and bigotry. Why is that wrong, and and what? Why does the West need saving? Yeah, well, it's funny, you know. Not everybody would describe a person that studies ancient Greek philosophy as somebody with a lot of common sense. In fact, (laughs) sometimes those two things are kind of uh, considered opposites. And I think that speaks to a widespread cultural assumption we have. We may not recognize it, but we've been kind of taught through our media outlets and our entertainment that the wisdom of the past, seeking wisdom in the great traditions of Athens and Jerusalem, that this is somehow a kind of backwards or a superstitious way of going about things. Because those people in the past, they were worse than us. They were nasty, racist, misogynist, exclusive. You know, you throw any label at it and and people say these sorts of things, you know. And, and one thing that I was very lucky about is that when I was very young i grew up in a house filled with books and one thing i i realized first of all i didn't know that was weird you know i thought that everybody did and i had to learn that 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 was a lucky thing but what i learned very quickly is that being surrounded by books means being surrounded by friends and when we talk about the west what we're really talking about is a great 
conversation that has endured for thousands of years. You know, people from, you know, the great civilizations of Greece and Rome. That's what we mean when we talk about Athens, classical antiquity. And then the wisdom literature, the revelation, the scripture of Judaism and Christianity. And that's what we mean when we talk about Jerusalem. And so when you pass these things down through centuries, you know, it can feel as if this is some sort of obscure, antiquarian kind of uh, backwards interest, but really it's incredibly urgent. I mean, when we wake up in the news every day, we see crisis after crisis. It feels like everything is totally unprecedented. But what I'm arguing in this book is that really, you know, the questions we're up against aren't unprecedented. They're questions like, what is a human being? And, you know, what's our place in the universe? And for those questions, the great tradition is the best place to seek sane answers. These things aren't just dusty books. They're not, you know, backward superstitions. They're a community. It means we're not alone. And we don't have to face the future just on our own meager resources. So I wanted to give people uh, access to that tradition and those riches, because I think we're going to need them as the future comes rattling ahead. Well, you know, Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, said there's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> right. <laughs> we reacting the same thing. And if, if we could learn from what's happened in the past, uh, rather than just rewriting it or discarding it, uh, boy, I think maybe we could make some real progress. Oh, but absolutely. Uh, it seems to be uh, antithetical to our nature to do that. <laughs> but uh, what, in fact, are these five crises? Can you tell us a little bit about them? Sure. Um, you know, we hear the word crisis all the time. It's one of the most, I think, maybe overused word in the news. You get the crisis of the supply chain, the COVID crisis, economic crises. And, you know, don't get me wrong. These are all bad things. They're, they're things to be concerned about. A lot of them are very serious. Um, but the word crisis is a Greek word, and I'm using it in a very specific way here. Uh, it comes from this Greek idea, uh, krino, which means I judge or I make a decision. And so a crisis in the true sense is an opposition, a choosing point, a time for choosing between two fundamentally irreconcilable ways of looking at the world. Is there absolute truth or is everything relative that's a crisis if you have to decide between those two options um, and so each of these crises that i talk about in the book i've tried to take the the things that we think about in the news things that you might see every day and say what are the crises that are underlying this this problem these sets of, of problems mm -hmm. what are the big questions that we're asking because if we can get there then we can maybe start to think about ways to answer uh the, the underlying question so the first crisis is the one i just alluded to the crisis of reality um, right. is there such a thing as true or false or is there nothing good or bad but thinking makes it so a very ancient question in philosophy and there are a lot of good reasons arguments that i present in the book to thinking that we either have to believe in truth or we should just give up altogether because it's all just about power and um, so if we believe in truth then we kind of get led on to this next question which is the crisis of the body um, you know if truth is out there and if truth is eternal and endures forever why do we have to live in this world of death and decay that we suffer so terribly in our in our bodies and i think you see people grappling with this very ancient question all over the place the sudden uptick that we're having in gender dysphoria this extreme 
extreme discomfort and and ideological even discomfort with the body. So I'm arguing in this section that and the transhumanists who yes. think that uh, maybe we can just shed these bodies and. Uh, yes. That'll solve a lot of our problems. <laughs> well, that's exactly. I mean, that's a great example of something that, you know, maybe if you saw this in the news cycle, you wouldn't always draw this connection. But the transgender phenomenon, the transhuman phenomenon are part of the same thing. They're part of this loathing that we uh, are feeling about just living in in our humanity. And so this part of the book is about what our humanity offers that is that is good and worthwhile. Um, and I, I present this Greek idea called hylomorphism, which is the idea that we are souls in bodies, that our souls and our bodies are kind of inextricably connected from one another and our bodies are the language of the soul. And when you start talking this way, this leads you into these uh, other big questions that I think are really almost behind everything that we're fighting over. That's the crisis of meaning and the crisis of religion. They're kind of bound up together. You know, um, right. can we can we believe in anything beyond the here and now? Um, because if we can't, then everything is basically just sort of a machine that we just kind of fight over these different material things, but we never really have any purpose to our lives. In in the crisis of meaning religion section, I'm talking about how the tradition can help us to find what's beyond uh, mere, mere materialism. Um, and then in that crisis of regime, the last section, I say, well, these are all nice things to talk about. They obviously matter very much, but what are we going to do? <laughs> this is what's going to happen to America. Um, and and what is America supposed to be? How does America fit into the West? And I'm arguing that America is really the, the pinnacle of what the West has achieved politically, um, even now, even even still. And so there there are some ways that we can invest again in that American idea as part of the project of saving the West. And that's the reason that we have these big, sophisticated brains, <laughs> uh, unlike animals who have big, sophisticated midbrains so they mm. can react to stuff. We have these big frontal lobes so that we can engage in rational thought processing, extract information from the past, integrate it with information from the present, project it into the future, do very complex uh, analyses. And uh, you've obviously done a lot of that. <laughs> and, we appreciate it. and we all want to benefit from that itself. But what, what do the great thinkers say about male and female gender roles. Mm. I'm sure we're not the first ones to grapple with this. No, we we are certainly not. We might be the first to go through such a widespread civilization level uh, right. confusion about how this works. But, you know, as has been pointed out, there's basically always been an acknowledgement that there are men and women. This is one of the most obvious majority views throughout all of history. But one thing that I think can get lost when we start to have these arguments over transgenderism and born in the wrong body and all of that stuff is that, you know, we're not actually just our bodies and we're not just a kind of disembodied spark of, you know, pure consciousness or gender identity is kind of the modern term for this, right. uh, you know, disembodied spark that can reform the body at will. One thing you learn from studying the ancients is that those options have been on the table for a very long time. Those aren't new. There were, for instance, among the Neoplatonists, there were people that suggested that really we need to get out of, transcend the flesh and reconnect with some kind of, you know, immaterial divine all. The thing that we discover when we dig a little deeper into these traditions is that that 
never really quite works. You know, we always end up thinking it's going to set us free if we can get rid of our just these, you know, one modern term I've heard is, you know, our, our ape brained meat sacks, you know, this very grotesque way of talking about the body that you hear a lot online now. But if you read, for instance, the book of Genesis, right, there's an amazing moment in which God breathes life into the dust. And what's really interesting to me about that is the dust is not a human being, but the breath of life isn't a human being either. It, the human beings aren't just this kind of airy idea floating things. Uh, it's when the breath of life enters into the dust that it becomes a living soul, nefesh chayim in the, in the Hebrew. And this is wonderfully and remarkably uh, identical to this Greek idea that I mentioned earlier of hylomorphism. In, in Greek, you know, hule is matter, it's stuff, it's things like the size of our brains, for instance, which has a kind of material component. But then it's not just that those brains have certain, you know, machinery in them. It's also, as, as you well know, it's that they're able, they make us able to see form, shape and order in the world. I mean, this is the Greek word morphe, the shape that things take. Right. And so hylomorphism it's basically the Greek way of saying that same idea that's in Genesis, that mankind is made from a fusion of matter and spirit. And, and our, our bodies are not a mistake, but our souls aren't an illusion either. Our, our bodies are the language in which the soul is expressed. And if that's true, then this idea that you're born into the wrong body or that you, you know, your body should be reconfigured to match some true essential you you can see why that's not going to work in advance, you know, and you can offer to yourself and to others a, a saner way of understanding what you are. You're not just a kind of lump of stuff to be played around with. You're actually an embodied soul, which is a precious thing to be. There, there's, you know, only a countable number of them in the universe. And this is something I think that we could definitely recover on this topic. And if, if in fact, uh, you know, we don't have bodies then we don't have a mechanism to reproduce ourselves. Mm, yes. and, uh, we become extinct <laughs> pretty quickly. <laughs> right. right, right. I think the, the transhumanists would say, well, that's okay because we'll just live in our, in our robot bodies. But my feeling is, well, who? Who will that be? That won't be you. That'll be a kind of, you know, exactly. computer code, essentially. Well, why do you think uh, conservative thought is losing the culture war? I think there are a number of reasons, and most of them have to do with the heart. And the left is very good at appealing to the heart. And we, I think, as conservatives, uh, scorn and uh, mock them for that a lot of the time. You know, oh, it's the libs, and they have their tears and their snowflakes, and they, you know, they, they tug at the heartstrings. And I think, <laughs> what's that? It works. Exactly. Well, it's right. It's, it's half true, right? It's half true because appeals to emotion that have no logic behind them are kind of contemptible. And, and you know, and, and they do make us think like that's very childish. But there's a reason why they work. And that's because we're not just brains in jars. We have a whole inner life that we connect to each other into the world with. And so this is why, you know, the, the core section of the book, the crisis of meaning section is about art. It's about what art does and how it communicates to us and he's saying well why why has the left spent so much time and energy capturing hollywood you know we just watched the oscars last night and everybody was talking about equity and these big you know leftist political buzzwords it's right. like why has a political movement spent so much time capturing 
our major artistic institutions. And it's because they know that human beings, in order to understand things, need to be taught in more than one way. You can't just tell people things. You also have to show them. And this is kind of what art does. I, I think that conservatives, you know, sometimes we just reject the culture because there's a lot that's messy and ugly in it. But slowly now, I think we're learning that we can't do that. We actually, although we have good arguments and although we are rationally, I think, on the right side of these debates, we also need to be making stories about why those arguments are not just factually true, but ennobling, virtuous, good, heroic. I mean, these words, I think, are the kind of things that people need to connect to what we're saying, because the leftist project is breaking down down and failing them everywhere they are they're miserable in these you know kind of anti-human forms of life but we need to offer them something better life imitates art and we've got to yes. get the right art out there huh? <laughs> i think so i mean art yeah they're, they're the ancients had this saying cicero talks about the way rhetoric works and rhetoric of course is very close to art and he says it it can moere it can move us it can docere, it can teach us, and it can delectare, it can delight us. And it does all those three things at once by, as you sort of indicated, representing the world to us, showing us the world in a certain way. And when somebody gets up and, you know, performs a play, they're telling you this is how the world is. And the left does that all the time. They say the world is like this, you know, men and women are like this. And that's why they're constantly you know, shoving these images at us of how men can become women and, you know, the sex is indiscriminate sex is good. And, you know, we have got, I think, to put our own images out there, our own stories. I mean, I really this is one reason why I love what The Daily Wire is doing and other places like that, that they're making narrative accounts, visions of what the future could look like if we took a better path. Exactly. Well, uh, as you can see, we have a very fascinating guest today, uh, Spencer Clavin, and we'll be right back in one minute with more. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe, now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we're back with Spencer Clavin. I guess you could call him a philosopher. He certainly, I think, qualifies. I'd be honored to be called a philosopher, sure. <laughs> but uh, I want to ask you about the, the crisis in religion. You know, we seem to be moving away from faith in our society. And it, it worked pretty well for us for a long time. It, it helped us to go from 
a ragtag bunch of militiamen to the pinnacle of the world and record them. What's happened to us in that regard? Well, you know, there's a line in the Bible, I'm sure you're familiar with it. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. Yeah. And it's from the Psalms. And I think, I don't know about you, I used to read that line and I just thought, oh, that means that like atheists are dumb, basically. You know, that this means it's stupid to be an atheist. And uh, fair enough, but I actually think there's something much more profound going on in that passage. I think that what the Bible says again and again is that if you tell yourself you don't have a God, if you believe that there's no higher power that you worship, then you're kidding yourself. You're turning yourself into a fool. It's kind of an act of self-deception because to talk about philosophy for a second and hopefully to do a, do philosophy in a commonsensical kind of way, you know, you get up in the morning and you get out of bed. Well, why? Because you want something. You want coffee. You want you have to go to work, whatever. If you keep asking that why question long enough, you'll find that everybody has something that they say, well, that's because this is just good. You know, even if they don't want to go to work, they go because they want money. Why do they want money? Because they want to be able to do whatever they want. And ultimately, somebody is going to give you a final cause, a goal or a highest purpose that's driving their life, even if they don't know it. Everybody has this. And this is a kind of worship when you bend the knee to something, when you put it above all other things, when you do what it tells you to do that's that's worshiping and so we're all worshiping all the time everybody is a worshiping being humanity mankind is a worshiping species and so basically what i think happened is we fell victim to a kind of blindness that said we weren't doing religion that we could you know get a, get by with just kind of material things and that we could you know science basically had replaced all of this and we would just be prosperous and rich and that would be fine but what happened when we did that is not that we stopped worshiping. It's just that we started worshiping other things without knowing it. And now you can see this in the public square. We worship politics. We worship science. I mean, even when those things can be good sometimes, you know, when you hear people talk about trust the science, right? Dr. Fauci represents the science. or. <laughs> yes, he is the science, right? And of course, you know, you you know better than anybody. That's not somebody doing science. That's a claim to occult knowledge, to secret clerical wisdom that empowers him to tell us what to do. And in politics, you see people bend the knee at BLM rallies and they beg for absolution. They ask for forgiveness. These are religious behaviors. They're kind of rituals that show where our hearts are, are headed. And so... What I say in the book about this is, you know, it's very delicate when you start talking about religion. People say oh, you're shoving your beliefs down my throat or you're trying to evangelize me and all these things. And we do. We have freedom in the, of religion in this country. I, I believe in it firmly. But what I think we really need is to realize a little bit that we're already worshiping. It's less of a conversion and more of a, a realization. That's the first step. And once you know that, once you understand that about yourself, then you can ask, well, what is worthy of my worship? What deserves to be in that highest good spot? And, you know, the, the, the spoiler alert is that 
the answer is not Dr. Fauci. It's not the World Economic Forum. It's not the CDC, because those are entities that are going to betray you. They're going to disappoint you, even if they do good things sometimes. Ultimately, they're going to fail you. And so the tradition is where we go. The, the scriptures are where we go to ask, what is worthy of worship? What can I worship that will set me free rather than put me in chains? And there's only one answer to that question, and, it, and it's God. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting that uh, a lot of the scientists, they don't look at what they say because they say all of a sudden there was this big bang and everything became perfectly organized. <laughs> now, these are the same people who believe in the second law of thermodynamics, entropy, which says things move toward a state of disorganization. <laughs> So all of a sudden, everything is perfect, you know, and, and our solar system, you know, the way the planets orbit, the sun, the way they rotate on their axis, they're just the right distance from the sun so that they don't burn up. Or free. Right. I mean, it's pretty awesome and amazing that anybody can believe that that just happened. And and by the way, you know, the point, the, the dimensionless point from which it all expands is outside of time and space, right? It exists in a region that where those categories don't obtain. And you think, well, that's just a disc I mean, yeah, if, if you believe that everything naturally tends toward chaos and yet from a timeless, spaceless, dimensionless point, they're suddenly bloomed time, space, and order, and, you know, constants, gravitational and, and constants and strong force constants that exist within a tiny range of, of possible values for them to support conscious life, then, right, the, the question is, why would you look at that universe and assume that there is no God? Or why would you invent all sorts of reasons? Well, there's a multiverse, for instance, that explains why there is no God. And you think, well, only if you were living according to a faith, right? Only if you had a certain conviction before you came to the question uh, that certain answers had to be predetermined. And I think that's basically what atheism has become in science. It has become a dogma that is not to be questioned. It was never a discovery of science. Science never discovered or proved atheism because it wasn't designed to look at that set of questions. Now and they now they become their own gods in a way. Mm, yes. um, you know, proclaiming themselves wise, they became fools, as it says mm. in Romans 1. Mm. And uh, that is a clear manifestation. And if you proclaim yourself to be God, then things like transgenderism become a whole lot easier because mm. there is no God who actually knows why this is a male and a female. So I get to decide. And um, right, there's, yeah. and of course, does it lead to anything good? Does it does it clarify anything, or does it lead to massive confusion? <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, this is why the question of reality and the question of God are really the same question, because absolute truth is the question of God. He, he you know, he, it must be his mind and his judgment that sets that limit of what is real, what is male and female, or else. There is no limit. And as you say, you can just kind of reconfigure. Um, but that same Romans passage, right? The, not only do they, they try to become gods, they also worship, uh, you know, images of, of animals and, and right. beasts and these, you know, things in the material world, which was a very widespread practice, not just in 
Greece and Rome, as as Paul is talking about, but certainly in Mesopotamia and Babylon, you can still dig up sculptures of gods with various bestial heads and so forth. And this is sort of what we do if we if we don't have something outside the world to worship, we have to pick something right. inside the world to worship. And exactly. Well, you know, you're obviously a significant historian. You've looked at a lot of writings from a lot of different eras. Why is rewriting American history such a dangerous path to take? Well, what's really important, I think, about that question, and it's, it's a great one, is that it goes back to our conversation earlier about art, that we don't just make arguments with ideas and with reason, although those are very important, but we also make them through narrative and storytelling. And there are certain truths in history that are so big and so important that even the kind of myths that grow up around them have a certain truth. Things like, you know, Washington chopping down the cherry trees and I cannot tell a lie, right? These ideas that this guy was that virtuous from the beginning, you know, that story tells you something about our founders, that they were men of extraordinary virtue. And if you then follow that idea into its historical fact, you will learn how true it really is that Washington, you know, for forewent a crown, that he wouldn't become king, that he led an army in a revolution as, you know, as many people have done, including Julius Caesar, and yet, you know, never became king, but installed these these ideals in our in our nation. These things are unutterably precious. They're inestimably valuable. And they don't just drop out of the sky. They have a history. They come from somewhere. And so, you know, when somebody like Nicole Hannah-Jones of the 1619 Project or BLM or, you know, these various other uh, factions that are trying to rewrite our history, when they tell these other stories, like that America was founded on slavery, that we fought the revolution to preserve slavery against Britain, which is totally false, they know it's false, a lot of these things. They often know it's false, but they keep saying it over and over again because they're trying to create an artistic picture. They're trying to tell us about who we are. And that kind of project, that effort is an, a classic totalitarian impulse and, or, and authoritarian impulse. I mean, you look at the Soviet Union, this is something that was frequently done, the rewriting of history to convey certain political ideological messages. Um, Athens, at its at its breakdown when it fell began to do something similar so they know exactly what they're up to and it's not just a matter of historical interest it's actually an urgent matter for the present that we tell Absolutely. the right stories and of course your history is the basis of your identity hmm. your identity is the basis of your beliefs hmm. and if you destroy that chain then you become like a leaf blowing in the wind very easy to manipulate which is, I think, the reason when ISIS goes in and conquers an area, they destroy the history. Mm, right. And uh, we're doing it voluntarily. And it's so important, I think, that people recognize we don't have a perfect history. Uh, there is no place that is inhabited by human beings that has a perfect history. That's why we need a savior. But uh, the fact of the matter is we have a strong history in this country. And if you if you look at the whole thing, the good, the bad and the ugly, you see, there's a lot more good than there is bad and ugly. And to try to build our our future on the bad things, obviously, that has an incredibly deleterious effect on the perceptions of those young people who are being indoctrinated 
And one of the reasons I think we have to fight so hard to make sure that people are educated properly, given the real information, go back and study what has happened in the past. You know, you look at some of the things that are happening right now in today's world uh, with Putin trying to reestablish, you know, the Soviet Union, starting with Ukraine. And then look at how Hitler started. You know, I mean, if you don't understand the things that have happened in the past and then you don't recognize them as they're happening now and you're not able to to learn from those things and take corrective action in time to avoid a disaster. Well, that's very beautifully put. And there's something I would add to that as as well, which is, you know, when we condemn our history, as you say, it's not just that we're we're wrong uh, because our relative to the possibilities in the world, it's a very broken, fallen world, no doubt. And there are many terrible things in our history and in every history. But as you say, we have a, a good and a great history as things go. And also when we condemn our history, we are using ideals that came to us from our ancestors. So if you say it's it's an atrocity that Americans held slaves, well, that's perfectly true. It is an atrocity. But the next question is, why do you know it's an atrocity? Why do you believe that that was wrong? And, and the answer is, well, because all men are created equal and they're endowed by their creator with the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And you know, that, that idea didn't fall out of the sky. In fact, if you study most of history, you'll learn that most people in most times and most places have not believed that all men are created equal. These are very, very precious ideas that had to be grasped really through years of study and debate. And when our founders put them into words, they were drawing themselves on Athenian political philosophy, Roman ideas, but also, of course, scripture, the creator who endows us with these rights because we're in his image. And so the notion that we would throw that out because it wasn't perfect. Well, it's like no, no ideal drops perfectly into right. the sky. We always progress toward it. And yeah, the people that came up with these ideas didn't immediately embody them. But guess what? I don't perfectly embody them and live up to them either. And the folks that are asking us to scrap it all also definitely don't live up to these right. ideals. So it's like, yeah. what are you going to replace it with? Right. And if they look back at, at our history and our history of our founders, you'll see that there was some significant controversy amongst them about slavery. Mm -hmm. But also, you might uh, come to recognize, if you're a historian, that virtually every society has had to grapple with slavery, with that issue. Right. And uh, so that did not make us unique because we had slavery. They want you to think that we're uniquely evil. Mm -hmm. What is unique is that we were the only society that had so many people who were vehemently opposed to it that we fought a bloody civil war and lost a lot of our population to get rid of it. Right. And, uh, you know, those are the kinds of issues that should be discussed. You know, when, when we talk about slavery and things like reparations, recognize that the majority of white people in the South did not own slaves. That was something for aristocrats. You had to be rich for that. So, you know, to sort of smear everybody just doesn't make any sense. And where, how does it ever lead to anything that's good? 
And that's what we have to start thinking. And, and, and I think that's where leadership comes in. Hmm. A good leader or a bad leader can have profound effect on the direction of a nation. Yes, uh, this is a very important point. And the concept that comes to mind from classical philosophy is the concept of statesmanship, that what we look for when we look for a leader is not just a calculator, not just somebody who can run the numbers and tell us what the perfect way of organizing society is. Um, but he has the virtue in, in Greek, it's called phrenesis, which is like practical wisdom. It's about taking these big ideas that you and I are talking about here right. and asking, well, what can we do in this here and now moment, given where we are? I mean, another person who comes to mind as when you talk about how a leader can turn things around in this sort of more positive direction is you think about the first term of Mayor Giuliani in the 90s in New York, that this was a flawed individual, as we all are. This was somebody that, you know, I don't agree with him about everything. I doubt he agrees with me about everything if he knew if he knew who I was. And yet this is a person that exhibited that that virtue of phrenesis, of, of practical wisdom, that he took a series of problems. He had also a series of ideas about how human beings ought to be able to live, you know, in, in freedom, freedom from violence and crime. And he put those into practice in this very concrete way. And as you say, you know, New York has been living off of that for for a long time. They're starting to lose that again. But that it's remarkable how quickly it, it can change if, if a that, leader that takes is, the reins. It is amazing. We have uh, fascinating guests, Spencer Clavin, and we're going to be right back in a minute. Stay with us. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we're back. With more common sense, Spencer Clavin is with us. And I want to ask you, what is your impression of what's been going on recently at places like Asbury College, where they were having this uh, major revival? Uh, and the students, there's only about 2,000 people on the campus, but they had 50 to 70,000 people <laughs> coming in and participating and uh, the revival. Well, what do you think these young people are seeing that's happening in our country? Well, I think the first thing is hunger. 
longing, yearning. Um, I think that the culture is really doing a disservice to young people, even people, you know, younger than than I am. I'm 32 and sort of thought until recently that I sort of counted as among the youngest generation. But there's now a whole generation of people that are that are definitely younger than me and lived through a different experience than I did. I, I was able still to enjoy the fruits of kind of American greatness in the in the 90s, as I recall, as I remember it. And a lot of these kids, when I talk to them, it doesn't matter if they think of themselves as conservative or liberal, but they don't have a recollection of America as a healthy society. They don't regard America as a, as a healthy civilization. That's very hard for somebody like me to right. hear, I think. But it is true. It is a way that people are experiencing this, this country. And so they feel the emptiness of what our culture has to offer them in a way that even I, who am a big critic of our culture, even even I still don't really feel that emptiness in the direct way that that they do. And there is some, I have to say, some hopefulness for me in this. I, I, I don't want anybody to have to live through that kind of experience. But I do think, you know, G.K. Chesterton, the great uh, Christian apologian, said that if you want to receive the good news, you have to get the bad news first. Mm -hmm. um, and that idea that like the, the world of man, the offerings of man cannot satisfy. And that if we try to become as gods and we try to get, you know, our meaning and our satisfaction out of our technology or our prosperity or our material goods, ultimately all of those gods will break our hearts and betray us. And so when I see, um, you know, this what's happening in Kentucky and and the way that young people are clamoring for for meaning, I mean, we began this conversation on the occasion of this book that I just wrote. And it's it's because I had the sense of that hunger that I wrote it. You know, I, I've been speaking about these issues for some some years now. And when I started out, I think it was easy for me to think, well, you know, ancient philosophy, classical ideas, these are kind of niche interests. And so it'll be fine for me to just talk about them in my little circle. But I met so quickly with so much hunger for sensible, sane ideas about the big questions. Right. And those big questions need answers. We can't get by without answers to those questions. And we think that we can, but ultimately they, they come due. So I think that's that's really what I see when I see people, you know, I, I can't predict the future, whether this is going to grow into a, a blaze and a, a nationwide movement. I sure hope so. And I, I sure think there's the possibility there. But really, you know, if we were wanting to encourage that, what we have to acknowledge is this is a response to real cultural yeah. emptiness and real need. Well, you know, the United States of America has been the shiny city on the hill for so many. Mm. And even today, with all the negativity and people talking about how horrible we are, systemically racist and all, mm. you still see people clamoring to get in here. If it was so bad, why would they all be trying to get in here? Think right, about right, right. But, uh, you know, Benjamin Franklin in 1787, after the end of the Constitutional Convention, came out and he was asked, sir, what do we have here? A monarchy or a republic? And he said, a republic, if you can keep it. Mm if you can keep it. Was he talking basically about the same thing you're talking about and saving? Uh, I, I think so. Yeah. I mean, you know, so, something else that comes to mind when you say this is um, when Abraham Lincoln said, we must either nobly save or meanly lose the last best hope of earth. And I'm quoting 
from memory there, so I may have gotten some words, but that was the idea. Right. And um, the reason that America matters when you talk about saving the West is because even as we're in this terrible, I think, you know, really rough time for our country and, and its leadership, we are still, I think, the best idea politically that the West has ever produced. As, as you said, with that Franklin quote, we are a republic. And that is a very delicate kind of political organization based around the idea that, that mankind should be free. It comes from, as I talk about in the regime section of the book, it comes from this long history of thinking about the different ways to build a civilization. You have basically three ways of ruling over one another. You could have a monarchy where one person rules, an oligarchy where a few people rule, or an aristocracy if they're the best people, and then uh, the rule by the many, which we would now call democracy. And mm -hmm. each of these forms of government can be done well or it can decay but because humanity is the way it is they often do decay so a monarchy can decay into a tyranny right the person will just take control for his own good and then if you have an uprising that leads then you know the the aristocracy takes control then that can decay into a, an oligarchy or into cronyism and if the people take control even the people aren't perfect lincoln knew this best of all maybe that the people can become a mob and so a republic is like a little perpetual motion machine that's designed to take all of these different forms of rule, all these different kinds of power, and balance them against one another. That's why we have checks and balances. That's why we have a tripartite constitution. All of these things are there. Nothing is there without thought. Everything was very carefully placed there. And one thing that John Adams said we need if we want to keep that machine going, the, the kind of fuel that, that keeps it working is a moral and religious people. People can't preserve, maintain that civilization unless they have those bonds of what the Greeks would call philia, friendship or, or civic love that, that right. bind them together. And that I think is, you know, when we start to talk about these revivals that are that we're seeing, this, this hunger that, we, that people have for meaning, um, I think it's because we sense that we're doomed without, without that. The machine can't run unless we are the glue that, that holds it together. And that means morality and religion. Exactly. Well, I'll tell you, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Thank you. And uh, can you tell people where they can get your book and hear more about your work? I Thank you. Yes, I'd, I'd be delighted. I am on Twitter at Spencer Clavin, but the book is available anywhere. And I would encourage people, you know, if, if you like listening to things, it's on Audible. And I did the I did do the audio book myself. So you can listen to me read it or you can get it on Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble, really anywhere that that books are sold. And it's a way to get a kind of in, inroad into the stuff that you and I have been talking about, the wisdom of the past. Well, I have to tell you, it's an incredible encouragement to people of my generation to know that there are young people of your generation who are actually thinking about these things Thank and uh, who, who actually believe that there is a moral basis for our existence. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it gives me hope when I see the things that are going on at some of the colleges. I see young people like yourself. I see parents rising up and demanding that the right things be taught in the schools. Mm -hmm. I would say to those people who are getting really discouraged and ready to throw in the towel, don't throw the towel in because there has been turmoil like this ever since there's been mankind. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, we just have to be persistent and recognizing that this too will pass. So thank you so much for being with us today. Keep up the wonderful work and we'll be following what you're doing. Thank you. It's been an honor and really lovely to talk to you. Thanks. Thank you. And we'll be right back with my closing comment and your prescription for this week. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. enjoyed that fascinating talk with uh, Spencer Clavin. You know, he's 32 years old. He's young. He represents another generation. That means there's hope for us. There are others like him. There are all those young people, you know, at the colleges who are starting to recognize that we're not each other's enemies and that uh, we don't have to hurt other people. We don't have to cancel other people. We can work together. We can have different beliefs, but we can still work together. That's what community is all about. And I want you for your prescription for this week to continue the fight. Remember the fundamentals of who we are as a nation. Be willing to discuss that with other people. And finally, remember the cornerstone principles. Faith, liberty, community, and life. And make sure you go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you don't miss any episodes. Tell your friends and families. And let's bring common sense back to America. See you next week.